0: We have a really exciting weekend planned. We are so thrilled, and we're excited to have um, our main speaker as one of our workshop leaders as well. And so I am going to introduce with uh, no further ado, Mrs. Faith Taylor. She is our, speaker, our workshop speaker today, and we are thrilled to have her here. So Faith, come and, come and share what God has put on your heart. Hello! I love all you front row Baptists. And I know that it's not where you would choose to be. but I'm going to enjoy it and pretend that you want to be here. I did notice, and there were no takers right here. I don't spit that far. I'm delighted to be here again. Uh, Sandy mentioned this before we started, and I had this thought myself. when I came two years ago. Uh, My husband and I had only lived in Iowa for one year, and I didn't really feel connected yet. We had not—we were just in the process of joining a church, I think, at that point. And by the time I left here, I just felt connected to Iowa women um, because of y'all, which was really nice. And then that made it really fun to look forward to. It's neat when you go back to a conference to speak at the same place. You have have some sort of familiarity and— and connections. Even though I probably won't remember all of your names, um, it is fun to do this again. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into this. Did they get handouts for this or is this a, everybody got one? Sandy's going to go get one for herself. So if you need one, just wave at Sandy. Who needs one? Of course, you can take notes in your booklet if you want everything all together. This is a pretty simple outline. It's not one of my more in-depth ones that makes you feel like you're in school. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father God, thank you um, for this wonderful privilege as Christian women of just getting together and spending um, 24 hours just fellowshipping and having fun and studying your word together. And God, I pray that you would use this time to encourage the heart of each lady who's here. And I don't know what their burdens are or their problems or their heartaches, but you do. And we ask that your spirit will take the word of God and do the work of God in our hearts. I pray during this time that this will just be a practical help. It'll be a challenge to us as far as our relationships with one another. In your name we pray, amen. On the first day of school, in the third grade, I walked into a brand new school in a brand new city in a brand new state. My family had moved from Charlotte, North Carolina. I know you can't tell I was from the Carolinas, right? Right. From Charlotte, North Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia. My dad was an accountant and had a job transfer. And I walked into a brand new school where I knew no one. And there were about 20, 25 other little eight-year-old faces looking inquisitively at me, which wasn't really fun. But then our teacher, Miss Cook, In my estimation, the most wonderful and most beautiful school teacher ever. I adored her. She had us all stand around the outside edge of the classroom and go around and introduce ourselves. I don't think that's typical on the first day of school. I don't know if there were a lot of new kids or why she did that. But during that process, I looked around and I'm checking everybody out and I spotted a very petite little blonde-haired girl, the opposite of me. I've always been this tall, always. (laughs) And she was this petite little blonde named Catherine. And I'm standing there as an 8-year-old, and I thought, she's going to be my good friend. And I began to pursue friendship with Catherine as an 8-year-old, and she became my best friend. In the eighth grade, I again walked into a brand-new school in a brand-new city in a brand-new state in Jacksonville, Florida. My dad became uh, the vice president-controller of Blue Cross Blue Shield and moved us to Jacksonville. And the school that I went to was a Christian school in that it had a Christian curriculum and a Christian rule book, and Christian teachers. The end. Um, Most of the students were not Christian, and it was a pretty rough environment. So I went to classes my first day, and at lunchtime, I went and found my sister Joy, who is one year older than I, and I said to her, I hate this place. They were not very friendly. Two and a half years later, in the middle of my 10th grade year, did you catch that part? The middle of my 10th grade year. I again walked into a new school. My family moved back to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I actually had the privilege of going back to the same school that I had started grade school in. But I had been bumped up a grade, and so my little buddies from when I was seven were a grade behind me. And I remember thinking, I hope I make friends here, and I hope I can still be friends with them. What is my point? My point is that no matter what age you are or what stage of life you are in, you are wired for relationships. God made us that way. Whether you are an introvert or an extrovert, whether you are shy or outgoing, even if you're shy, you still want to have relationship. Maybe not with everybody in a big way. But you still want connections. That is how God designed us. He has instilled in us this need and this desire to interact, to communicate, to build relationships. And that, that is true of all of the human race. But we go even further with it when we talk about the body of Christ. Because God in his sovereign plan designed that he would use relationships to grow us, to nurture us, to edify us within the body of Christ. Our relationships as sisters in Christ, our relationships within our local churches are so vital to our Christian lives. Scripture, especially the epistles, is filled with verses about relationships within the body of Christ. A few examples would be Ephesians 4.16. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's talking about how the church functions. He's talking about the role of the pastor and the teacher and how people are gifted. And then he gets to verse 16, and he says, Every member of the body contributes to the growth of the body. And its individual members. So as they each use their gifts and speak truth to one another, they are investing in each other's lives and helping make the body of Christ function like it was meant to. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we are instructed to encourage one another and build up one another. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we have a verse that I love because it has multiple instructions for multiple types of people in the body of Christ. And that verse says that we are to invest in each other's lives through, first of all, confronting the unruly. Through, secondly, encouraging the faint-hearted or the discouraged. Thirdly, through helping the morally or spiritually weak That person who is struggling with moral purity is what this is talking about. Fourthly, through extending patience or long-suffering to all, regardless of where the people around you in your body of Christ are in their walk, you are to be patient and long-suffering toward them. And all of these verses are talking about the fact that God has designed us to be a major tool that he uses in the growth of the parts of the body of Christ. Not only do we have these instructions, but we have what I call the perfect or divine model. Jesus Christ himself gives us the model of what biblical relationships Should look like. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 15. And as you turn, let me give you the context of where we are. In John chapter 13, we have the Last Supper. We have Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We have Jesus revealing who the betrayer would be. And we have Jesus letting Peter know that actually he was going to deny Jesus. And then Jesus begins his last discourses. He knows what's coming. He is about to be crucified, and he wants to to take this one last chance to teach his disciples all these important things they need to know because he knows he's leaving. And that brings us to John chapter 15. And in the first discourse in John 15, he's talking about abiding in Christ, a passage most of us are familiar with. And then we get to verse 12. And starting in verse 12 through verse 17 of John 15, we have a biblical model, the model of Jesus himself of what biblical friendship or biblical relationships should look like. Let's read it together. John 15, starting in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved... Oh, I don't mean you have to read out loud. You're welcome to. But I'm guessing we're going to run into different translations and different speeds. So if you want to, you may read out loud. If you would like to, you may read silently, and I will read out loud. Or one of you can read out loud. Okay. (laughs) This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. I call this passage the friendship sandwich because in verse 12 and in verse 17, you have the same instruction. Do you see it? You have a repeated instruction, love one another. These are the two pieces of bread on my sandwich. And then in between is everything encompassed and involved in being a biblical friend, in loving as Jesus loved us. So Jesus says there... Love one another as I have loved you. He's setting himself up as the model, as the example. Okay, now let's just all admit, he was divine, he was perfect, and I can't do everything we're about to say he did, right? However, he calls me to follow this example. So we can't say, oh, that was Jesus. He's saying, here's how I did it. And I want you to do it also. So let's look at the four ways that he loved them. Or we could also say the ways that he was their friend. If you look through this passage, you will see in verse 13, the last word, the word friends. You will see in verse 14, the word friends. And you will see in verse 15, the word friends. Friends. So, yes, this is about how Jesus loved his disciples. But this is also a biblical model for friendship. Okay, first of all, if I can get this little baby working. To follow Jesus' model of friendship, give of yourself sacrificially. Verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, when we read this, We know what's coming, right? Isn't it amazing that when Jesus died and then rose again, the disciples just were constantly surprised, right? Because they kept missing what he was telling them. We have the benefit of knowing the rest of the story, and we know that when Jesus said this, that he is actually reflecting on what he is about to do for them. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends, this was a sacrificial love, the greatest sacrifice that a person could make. The divine model of love was without limitation. There was nothing he would not do because he, he did the ultimate. He made the ultimate sacrifice when he died for them and for us. John 10, 11 speaks of this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does What? gives his life for his sheep. First Peter 2, 24, in the midst of a passage that's talking about the suffering of Jesus Christ and giving us an example of that, says to us in verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. We have there the sacrifice, that ultimate sacrifice of love. And then we're told that we are to follow that example, not only here in John 15, but also in 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What's he telling us to do there? To be willing to lay down our lives for the brethren as he did. And let's think about this. How does this apply to us today? Most of us are not going to be asked to physically lay down our lives for each other. At this, at this point in time, could we come to that somehow in our country? Absolutely. But right now, that's not happening every day. I think of, ex- of times in history when it has happened. I think of soldiers who have sacrificed for other people's freedom. I think of the Underground Railroad when whites helped slaves escape the south and get north risking their lives knowing that they could be arrested or killed for that. So we've seen it in history, we could see it again. But for us right now, what does that look like? In Mark chapter 10, we have the narrative where James and John are asking Jesus. They're being they have some selfish ambition going on, right? And they're asking Jesus to let one of them sit on the right side and one of them sit on the left. And their mother's right in the middle of it, you know, great mother. Um, And they're asking Jesus for that. And Jesus responds to them in verse 43 through 45 of Mark chapter 10. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. And then in verse 45, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So in the context of telling them that they needed to be servants, he gives the personal illustration that he is going to give his life for them. He's equating his sacrifice of death to an act of sacrificial service. And that is how you and I today tomorrow, and every day are called upon to love sacrificially. We are to serve one another. Now, if we had an hour, we could go around this room, and you could all tell me how you serve. You all serve somebody, right? And boy, could you tell me. You know, you serve the pe- the little people in your house, the crumb crunchers. You serve your husband, you serve your apartment mate, you serve your coworker, you serve people in your church. So we can all pat ourselves on the back and say we've got this one down, right? Maybe not. Let's think about this because I believe that even though we all serve, a lot of times we're actually not following this model of sacrificial service. Let me illustrate that. A lot of times we are Self-seeking, even in our service. In what way? You know what? When I bend over backwards for somebody, I like to be appreciated. I like to be thanked. I like to be acknowledged. I like to be liked for it. And my motives get all messed up in that. And I am no longer really following Jesus' model of sacrificial service. Another way I think we fail to follow this model is we put limitations on our service. You know, when I got married, that whole idea of completing my husband was really cool sounding. You know, I mean, and I had my idea of what that was going to look like. I was going to have babies for him and I was going to take care of them and I was going to cook awesome meals and I was going to take care of his clothes. I don't mind doing laundry. But I had it all figured out how I was going to serve him. And sometimes he needed me to serve him in another way that I wasn't too excited about. Because I like to put limitations on my service. And sometimes we do that. We don't want it to cost us too much personally. And we also want it to be reciprocated and appreciated. In our homes, let me give some examples. Um, Dean and I are both college teachers, and so we sit on the couch at night. It's so romantic, you know. One of us is on each end of the couch, and we're both studying for the next day. Kind of reach over and tap each other's hands every, every few minutes, a few hours, whatever, depending on the mood. And <laughs> the stupid dog wants to go out. So where does my service come in? I linger just a second hoping he'll get up and let the dog out. Because it's not really convenient for me to serve right now. The baby cries. And you lay there for f- you lie there for five more seconds hoping maybe he'll hear and he'll get up. Men have selective hearing during the night, don't they? <laughs> Here's an example to me of a rebuking one. And kind of an embarrassing one. I'm just going to lay it out there. How's that? Um, I have been married for 33 years. And for all of those that I can remember, I have put up with snoring in my bed on the other side. And when it happens, I very kindly reach over and I give a little nudge. If that doesn't work, I get both hands over and I start rolling the man over, you know? Sometimes he wakes up. Sometimes the next morning he does not remember the four times that I did that. He's never once complained. He's such a kind man that he actually apologizes in his sleep. I'm like, honey, can you roll over? You're snoring. I'm sorry. And he rolls over, and the next morning he has no recollection of that. Okay? Well, about two years ago, guess who started snoring? I'm totally mortified by that. I think I blame everything on menopause at this point in my life. I think it was because... (laughs) Yeah, glory. I think it was because of menopause. So I started snoring of all things. It's not it's not what a southern genteel woman does. <clears throat> and when this first started happening, I woke up one morning and Dean had already gotten up. And as I got up to start make the bed, guess what I noticed? Earplugs on his pillow. And I thought, oops. And then I thought, what a nice guy. I'll wake the man up, shove him over, hit him. And he's such a servant that he sacrificially got up, found earplugs, put them in, and wore the stinking things all night. My point is, sometimes I want to say I'm a servant, but I don't actually have this sacrificial heart I don't have this limitless love and sacrifice that Jesus had. Let's move on to the second one. To follow Jesus' model of biblical friendship, I love sacrificially. And then secondly, I motivate to obedience. Verse 14 says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, Let me tell you what this is not before I tell you what it is, okay? This is not your petty playground conversation. You can be my friend if you do what I want you to do. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, you can be my friend if you obey me. What he's saying is, your obedience to me is an indication of your friendship with me. He's also saying, because we are friends I am motivating you to obedience. Okay, how does this apply to us? Obviously, my friends don't have to obey me. All right, and that's where, that's where this example, we can't fully flesh it out. We're not divine, we're not Jesus, right? But we have the great opportunity of motivating people to obedience, and that should be a part of our relationships in the body of Christ. How did Jesus do this? He spoke highly of his Father all throughout his earthly ministry, you and I can do that. He loved the disciples, you and I can do that. He modeled obedience, you and I can do that. Are are you a model of Christ-like obedience that motivates the people around you to also want to obey Christ? Are you that friend who when somebody leaves time with you, they say, man, she, wants me, she makes me want to be more like Jesus? That's what he's calling us to. How, how do I motivate you? I, I speak highly of the Father like he did. I love you like he did. And then I think I do it through my example. Ladies in your church, are, they observe you. I don't mean by that that you're the, you're the highlight, you're the, you're the point of interest that everybody's looking at. I just mean we observe each other. We hear each other's conversations. We hear how we talk to our spouses. We hear how we treat other people. We see people's reactions and responses. And we have an opportunity to motivate to obedience through that. People are hearing your words. They're seeing your attitudes and observing your actions. Um, Are those a model for people to follow? Do they see submission to authority of the church? Do they see respect for your spouse and how you speak about him? What do they observe in you? Another way that Jesus motivated them to obedience was he spoke the truth in love. And we can do that. Ephesians 4.15 talks about that that is a responsibility of us in the body of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we all grow up, it says, in all things. This requires boldness with grace. It requires selflessness. Sometimes we want to confront somebody out of anger or pride. But when we are confronting someone out of love... We are actually willing to risk the friendship for the sake of the friend. Let me say that again. If, I, if I'm burdened about something I see in your life, it takes boldness for me to come to you because I know you may not be receptive to that and it may cut off the friendship. And I'm willing to risk the friendship for your edification, That's what speaking the truth in love requires. And that demands a foundation of love and trust. It demands relational currency. So if I see Carrie, my friend from Maranatha, and I'm burdened about something in Carrie's life, if Carrie only knows me as that woman that sits on the other side of church, She's probably not going to be receptive to me trying to speak into her life. I have to have relational currency with her. I have to pursue warmly friendship, interaction, show interest in her life, build a relationship. You all know what that looks like. My husband was a youth pastor for four years after seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I I tell you what, I love youth ministry. Okay, so we had this youth group of, I don't know, 80, 100 kids, lots of teenage girls, and I got the, had the privilege of being their Sunday school teacher, being their cheerleading coach at school, and I tried to come up with ways to build relationship with them, right? So I did the whole sleepover thing, you know, all the ninth and 10th graders one night in the apartment. I can't remember where my husband went, but he disappeared. All the 11th and 12th graders one night. And we, y'all know who Tammy Faye Baker is? y'all remember that? We had a Tammy Faye Baker look-alike contest. <laughs> so boy, did we put on the mascara. And we posed and we took pictures and we had a big scavenger hunt where we went all around town. I had another driver and we, were, we went around town finding our clues. And then we made the infinite ice cream sundae from one end of my apartment down the hall to the other. You know what that is? It's really not very sanitary, but you put foil down the floor, and then you just load a, a, a running sundae and all the toppings, and then you all get down on your faces, you know, and you do it. Why did I do all that? I'm kind of that way, so I kind of thought it was fun. <laughs> but even if I wasn't that way, I wasn't weird and goofy and didn't think it was fun, I was trying to build relational currency. Right, and that's what we have to do in order to motivate people to obedience. I remember these same girls who were in the ninth grade, and I remember when they were in a seniors in high school, and we went on a mission trip to Nova Scotia, Canada, and there was a row of girls who were not following the travel rules, and I was in front of them, and they had headphones on, and I could hear the music blaring. This isn't a discussion about music, okay? But that was one of our rules. And I was like, oh my word. I've got, I'm the youth pastor's wife. <laughs> I've got to talk to them. And you know what? I had the chance to do that graciously and it be received because of what? Because of ice cream Sundays and scavenger hunts and Tammy Faye look alike contest. So we have to build these relationships so that we can model what Christ did. Moving on, look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. This verse is telling us That the things that God revealed to Jesus in their intimate personal relationship, Jesus then passed on to his disciples. He communicated transparently with them. He was a conduit of the Word of God. And that is part of the role model for us of biblical friendship. What does that mean? That means that I need to make myself vulnerable and tell you what God's doing in my life. That scares some of you to death. I need to be willing to share how God is speaking to me in His Word. I need to be willing to share how God convicted me of sin. Not always fun. But sharing transparently is part of the model of friendship that Jesus gave us. This is seen in God's relationship with Abraham. Way back in Genesis 18, when God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, do you remember that little conversation that the Trinity had? God said in Genesis 18, 17 to 19, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? No, I have chosen him. And because of a depth of relationship, God communicated transparently with Abraham about what he was about to do. And then you remember the story. Abraham had the chance to try to negotiate with God. If I can find 50 righteous people, 40, 30, 20, because he had family members there. And that is an example of God being transparent in relationships. And then Jesus gives us the example that everything my father's told me, I've told you. How are you and I doing with that? Let me ask you this. Don't raise your hand. No confessions. Okay? But how many of you, or with whom, have you shared a spiritual struggle or conviction of sin in 2019? Think about it. Is that a characteristic of your relationships? Because it's part of the model that Jesus gave us. You know, if you don't have this kind of relationship, your relationships are superficial. You just have fun with people. You just cut up with people. You just talk about the weather. You just talk about your kids. You just talk about your job. And that's not following a biblical model. I remember... Uh, I went to college in the 80s. Most of you know my age from two years ago, so go ahead and calculate if you weren't here. Um, and I I knew that God wanted me to be a pastor's wife. and So I took a class called Minister's Wife, and I read every book I could get my hands on about being a pastor's wife. And every one of them said, you cannot have close friends in the church. And I was like, what? And they went on to say the reasons for it. You know, you have to be approachable by everyone in the church. You can't show favoritism. And I agree with those principles. But I began to study the relationships of Jesus to to see, is this right? And I came to the conclusion that Jesus had a multitude of people who followed him, who had relationship with him. And of the multitude, he chose 12 to whom he revealed himself more. And of the 12, he chose three to whom he revealed himself more. And of the three, he chose one, the disciple whom he loved. And those relationships weren't secret because when the disciples wanted to know at the Last Supper who was going to betray Jesus, what did they do? They said, hey, John, find out. (laughs) If Jesus is going to tell anybody, it's going to be him. And that helped me understand that, yes, as a pastor's wife, I wanted to be available and have relationships with everybody. But some relationships were going to go further and be more intimate, and, more, and, and that I, if I held everybody at arm's length as the first lady, that's what they are in the South sometimes, I would profoundly impact no one. Because I would never be sharing what God was doing in my life. I would never be saying, you know what, I'm struggling with this. This is something God is really stretching me in. This is something God's been showing me and challenging me in. And that is a part of the biblical role, the biblical model of friendship. Um, One year at our church in South Carolina, the ladies' Bible study I taught was C.J. Mahaney's book on humility. And there's a chapter in there, I think chapter 7, which is on accountability groups. So I, I teach this Bible study that night, and I'm telling them, you need to have accountability, you need to be in accountability groups, blah, blah, blah. And afterward, this small group of people, I think it was three ladies, came up to me and they said, we want to start an accountability group, and we want you to be a part of it. I said, okay. And we began to meet every other week over lunch, and we began to share And every time we had lunch, we would go around the table and we would tell what God was doing in our lives, how God was challenging us, what we were struggling with. And then the other ones of all the nerve would give you advice and give you Bible and tell you what to do. And then two weeks later, they would ask you, have you been doing that? How's that going? And this was a messy group. One lady had been molested as a child and really struggled with intimacy in her marriage. One lady was a, had been a homosexual, had come to Christ, and was trying to live as a faithful wife, even though she still had those desires. One lady's husband had fought in Afghanistan and came home with PTSD, and there was violence in the home. And then one of us had a wayward child who had rejected the faith. We were all messy. And ladies, that group... That opportunity to invest in lives is one of the highlights of the 12 years of that time there. I named us the Wah Wahs. And they were like, No, don't call us that. I said, I'm calling us that, because every time we get together, somebody cries. It's just a big boohoo group. So we would text each other, When are Wah Wahs getting together? But there was a level of transparency there. And one of these ladies had been a pastor's wife. Sometimes, sometimes it's hard for people to relate to a pastor's wife and let her in. And she just treated me like anybody, you know, you got to shape up. Which was really good for me. And we need these kinds of relationships in our lives. Lastly, in this model of friendship, we see that we need to encourage fruit bearing. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. What's he saying? He's saying, I've been investing in your lives for these three years. I've chosen you as my friends. I've chosen you. And part of the reason is to help you bear fruit. And all of these other three qualities we've talked about all contribute to this, to helping each other bear fruit. Everything we've talked about, being willing, it takes being willing to spend time. It takes being willing to lovingly confront, to encourage, to disciple, to mentor, to comfort, to come alongside when that friend is hurting and just be there. God calls us to that. What a model Jesus gives us. And you're sitting there, and in your heart of hearts, like me, you're saying, But it was Jesus. And I can't do what he did. But remember what I said: Verse 12 and verse 17, our bread on our sandwich are imperatives. They're commands for us to love one another as he loved us. And as the Spirit of God is at work in us, we can grow in loving each other. You know, the Spirit of God works directly in hearts to comfort and to grow. But then the Spirit of God also uses the people around us in the body of Christ to accomplish that. I think it's because God knows that we like flesh and bones sometimes, you know, You need to be hugged. You need to be touched. You need to hear an audible voice, and that is God's design. Who can you do this with? I think that there's a growing burden and passion for this in our local churches. I think we look at Titus 2 and at the instruction to mentor one another, and we realize we're not the best at that in our churches. We lead busy lives, or we like to hang out with the people who are in the same stage of life as us. The mother of the two-year-old wants to ask the mother of the two-year-old how to get her child to sleep through the night. Go figure. But that's just our our human nature. We want to be with the person that we relate to. We want to be with the older person who's also talking about all of their aches and pains. But we're realizing that God has designed this pattern of relationship, intergenerational relationship, and that we as women in the body of Christ need to be intentional about investing in each other's lives. And I want to challenge you to pray and ask God to give you three people this year, if you don't already have this, to give you three people at least to build a relationship with. One would be a Paul. Someone from whom you would learn, someone that you can ask questions of who's ahead of you in life or ahead of you in a specific stage or experience of life. Secondly, pray and ask God to give you a Timothy, someone into whose life you invest. You may not go up and say, hey, can I mentor you? That might not go over real well. But you might just invite him to coffee or to lunch and start building a friendship and see where God takes that. And then I would encourage you to pray for a Barnabas or a Titus. In the Word of God, we see that Barnabas was a peer of Paul and he was an encourager. We see that Titus was a peer. And there's a place where Paul says that God sent Titus to come and comfort us. We need all three levels of relationship in our lives, and they won't necessarily happen automatically. And then we need to look here, and we need to say, God, this is your model. You know what this doesn't leave room for? It doesn't leave room for our selfish, self-centered friendships, where I want you as a friend because of what you do for me. Because you give me somebody to sit with at church or because you talk to me or you're nice to me or you affirm me. This is, this is about giving, isn't it? This loving sacrificially, this motivating to obedience, this communicating transparently, and this helping bear fruit. It's all giving. And hopefully God will lead other people to do the same for you so that you have these relationships. Let me say this. I cannot have this level of friendship with every single lady in my church. It's an impossibility. It's an impossibility because of time, and it's an impossibility because some of you, if I talk to you, we're like this, and we're just getting each other, and the waves are just connecting. And then some of you, we talk and we're like, you know, we just aren't gelling, and our relationship may not go all the way to communicating transparently. But you know what? With every relationship God gives me, I can at least do number 1. I can intentionally love sacrificially, and then I can see how far God will allow each relationship to go in carrying out this model. This is our God-given model, the friendship sandwich. And I hope it's an encouragement to you and also a challenge. I hope that we as sisters in Christ have this mindset of, I want to be used in other people's lives. And I hope that as you're driving to church each Sunday, you intentionally say, Lord, help me to be sensitive to the needs of other people today and bring people across my path into whose lives I can invest. We're not too good at that. We have our people. We have our seat. God forbid anyone take my seat. And because I have my seat and you have your seat, I typically sit in front of and behind the same people. And when I move to the other side of the church, I mess up the pastor and everybody. I'm going to challenge you. Go to church Sunday and everybody sit somewhere different. Won't that be fun? Your pastor's going to be so confused you won't be able to preach. <laughs> but because of that, and then because we often segregate by ages in our classes and all, we have our people. Can I challenge you to decide, you know what? I'm not going to talk to my best friend Sunday. I'm going to find and talk to that person I've never talked to. Scary. You might even have to say, I'm sorry, but I don't know your name. I should. I know you go here. That's okay. Just don't say, are you new? Because then it's embarrassing. (laughs) No, I'm a charter member, you know. (laughs) But just go up and say, I'm so sorry. I know your face, but I don't know your name. And they tell you and say, sit down and say, tell me your story. They're going to look at you like, what? (laughs) Start building relationships with different generations, different people, And seek to follow this model. What would happen in our churches if we did this? There would be some pretty amazing, edifying, encouraging, and exhortation going on. I pray we'll do that. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this model. Work in our hearts as we need. In your name, amen.